Welcome to SignalCast. In this week's episode, senior Signal consultant Keir Murray first talks to former El Paso Congressman and presidential hopeful Beto O'Rourke about the Texas Senate race and the lack of proper leadership regarding the coronavirus. Then Signal reporter Fernando Ramirez speaks with Nick Wirch, a Houston staff attorney and policy coordinator for Workers' Defense Project, about the issue of paid sick leave in Texas. And finally, a new edition of our segment House Cleaning, in which we look at House District 66, where Democratic opponent Sharon Hirsch is running against Republican incumbent Matt Shaheen. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Keir Murray, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by a former member of Congress, presidential candidate, and leading citizen of El Paso, Texas, Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> Beto, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Our pleasure. So before we talk about anything political, I think it, it sort of behooves us to take a step back and realize that we're in an extraordinary moment nationally, uh, a crisis situation as we speak. You know, markets are in free fall. There's growing fear about the spread of the COVID-19 coronavirus. And Americans are looking uh, without results for leadership from their president in the White House. And I'm just curious, as someone who served in Congress and who spent many months out on the campaign trail talking to voters all over the U.S., uh, what do you make of what's going on and what this moment means for Americans? I mean, if you, if you ever needed leadership, um, if, if you ever had an expectation that your government would be able to deliver on its most sacred commitment, which is, you know, the, the well-being, the safety, the health of the citizens of, of this country would be right now. And to see the president last night give a, a bizarre address to the public, one that had to be corrected almost immediately by the White House staff uh, for things that the president said that were not clear, were misleading, um, were, were downright false, um, I think shook a lot of people in this country. I mean, many uh, have already reached the conclusion that you cannot trust the president, that he's dangerous to uh, our future as a democracy, um, as a representative form of, of government, to the rule of law. But, but to see him fall down on, on this most basic, fundamental element of, of leadership, uh, I think, has, has changed things dramatically. Now, what do we do in the face of that? I think we're seeing some reassuring signs from the House of Representatives, who stepped up with a very ambitious funding program to expand Medicaid uh, or ensure that it is at least shored up in states like Texas, the least insured state in the country, so that we don't cut further. Um, to make sure that there is paid sick leave uh, for employees who are too scared um, to stay at home when they know that they should, um, and to fund you know, NIH, CDC at levels commensurate with the crisis that we see right now, precisely the kind of leadership that's missing from the president. And then my understanding is that uh, I believe this is going to happen today. Uh, Joe Biden is going to give an address on coronavirus, and uh, I think provide some of that leadership that is that is missing right now. So I agree with you. I, I, I just, um, there, there's been nothing like this moment that I can remember um, in, in my life. Uh, and uh, it's really going to test us as a country and it's going to test the leadership we have right now. And I think it's going to bring the choice that we have before us in the November elections into very sharp focus. 
Yeah, it's an extraordinary moment, and and not in a good way, I would say. And sort of transitioning to Texas, uh, I'm curious what your impressions are, what we've seen out of leadership in the state. Uh, Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick, the legislature. um, As you mentioned earlier, you know, Texas has 5 million uninsured residents and many more who are underinsured. Many of its residents who live on the economic edge or hourly wages uh, don't have sick leave, don't have benefits. Uh, what have you seen from state government or, or would you like to see uh, in the face of this this crisis that we're facing? I, I think you just very effectively described the challenge that, that we face, this underinvestment in people, in our health, our well-being, our, our ability to provide for ourselves and our families, um, already making life very tough for people before coronavirus, uh, now could really be a, a life or, or death issue. And the refusal in the face of an offer from the federal government going back to the Obama administration to pay 100, 100 cents on the dollar for Medicaid expansion, uh, a refusal that is inexplicable other than the animus that existed between Greg Abbott and, and uh, that he had for President Obama, um, given that it could have provided insurance and care for so many of our fellow Texans in the years before now, and then now at this crisis moment when, when we need it most, um, that's that's unforgivable and inexcusable and should be on our minds when we select who will represent us in the state house uh, in November and then in 2022, you know, who leads this state uh, from the position of governor and, and, and lieutenant governor. So I think really incumbent upon all of us to produce the pressure on these elected representatives, Republican or Democrat, to now follow through and do what they should have done years before. And I hope in the same way that the House of Representatives has really stepped up with a very bold plan to address this, one that I hope will pass the Senate, one that I hope President Trump will sign into law. I would really love to see Governor Abbott call into special session the legislature to to address this because um, every moment of, of delay uh, just deepens the crisis that we're in. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, about you, but there's no way in the world a week ago I would have thought that the NBA season would have been canceled, that they'd be seriously considering not only not having fans attend the NCAA men's basketball tournament, but maybe canceling the tournament um, altogether, that we would halt travel from Europe. Um, so l- let's let's take this seriously. And and um, and then let's also, you know, first priority, focus on, on making sure people are okay and public health. And then second priority, make sure that we make informed decisions at the ballot box in November based on what we've seen so far. Yeah, I think good advice. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the upcoming elections for the Texas House of Representatives, and you've made no secret that that's going to be a primary focus of yours over, going into the fall this year. And I'd like you to sort of lay out, you know, as you, we all know, Democrats are nine seats away from taking back control of the Texas House. And why is that important? What are the stakes going forward for the, st- for the state, not just in terms of politics, but in terms of policy, redistricting coming up, and what that's going to mean for Texans going forward, and why it's so important that we try to flip those seats? Yeah. Uh, the stakes could not be any higher than, than they are right now. And, it, and it's not just the present circumstances that we face, as, as dire as those are. It, it really goes to a longstanding history in Texas that favors people who look like you and me uh, at the expense of people who do not. Uh, so I'll give you a, a case in point. Uh, Waller County, home to Prairie View A&M, historically black 
College, one of the crown jewels in the higher education system in, in the state of Texas. That campus is split into two distinct uh, voting precincts, which makes uh, knowing where to vote and where to register to vote and how to vote more complicated than it otherwise needs to be. There have been uh, questionable practices in where early voting locations are placed. When you have that kind of effective voter suppression tactic compounded by voter ID, compounded by racial gerrymandering, which exists in Texas, which has been confirmed by the, the federal courts, you then explain the otherwise inexplicable, which is how was it that until 2018, Texas was 50th dead last in voter turnout in, in this country? Not that we don't love democracy, not that we don't want to participate in our elections, but we're literally drawn that way by the state legislature, a Republican-controlled state legislature. So if Democrats are in the majority, you begin to draw people back into representative districts, representational government, into our elections, and giving people a reason to vote. That in and of itself is would be an awesome victory. But then if you care about gun violence in a state that has witnessed Santa Fe High School, Sutherland Springs, El Paso Walmart, Midland Odessa, four mass shootings just in the last two years, you need a majority that is going to pass universal background checks and extreme risk protection orders. If you care about healthcare, and we were just talking about how, how dire the consequences are of the failure to expand Medicaid, you need Democrats in the majority. Only way we do that is winning at least nine seats, defending the ones that we won last time in 2018, where we picked up 12 seats. The good news, um, in 2018, I won more votes than Ted Cruz in nine of those state house districts that are currently represented by a Republican. So not only can we do this in some way, we've done it before. And then in addition, uh, we saw on March 3rd, just a couple of weeks ago, um, record Democratic voter turnout in a primary that, that eclipsed Republican turnout in what is thought to be a red state. And not only do we do it on a statewide basis, in these contested uh, state house districts, more Democratic voters came to the polls than Republicans. So not a slam dunk, not going to be easy. Um, don't bank on it. Uh, but if we all go out there and do the work, if we register people to vote, if we turn them out in October during early voting and then November election day, we will win those races, we'll win a majority. And in, in some ways in 2018, uh, our Senate campaign got some credit uh, for you know down ballot uh, pickup. So uh, we won 12 state house seats. Lizzie Panel Fletcher here in Houston, Colin Allred in the DFW metro area, both won races to Congress. Houston elected 17 African American judges. There was this this effect down ballot. The premise of what I'm working on now in 2020 is an up ballot effect. If we get behind these Democratic state house candidates in Houston, Fort Bend, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, Collin County, uh, all over the state, not only will we help win a majority in the state house, but we'll win more congressional seats. And I really do think that we can achieve the you know, highest goal we can have as a country right now, which is to defeat Donald Trump. And Texas, which I believe is now a battleground state, if organized, if we turn out to vote, could stop Donald Trump in his tracks, award the 38 electoral college votes to the Democratic nominee, and then forever change the political landscape in Texas. So that that is the scope and size of the opportunity before us. Now just up to, to all of us to get after it 
and and make sure that people turn out and actually vote in this election. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, just to touch on something you mentioned, I mean, I think we've seen an interesting phenomenon in this primary, both in Texas and also around the country, of the suburbs around the country really seeing dramatic increases in participation among uh, in the Democratic primary. And that so happens to be where almost all of these state house seats that you mentioned are located in Tarrant County, in Collin, in Harrison, Fort Bend, in the major metro suburbs, and places, incidentally, that you did very well uh, in your Senate race in 2018. And so uh, I think you're exactly on the right track. Uh, I guess last question I would have, and, and you can answer it or not, is, uh, as you know, we have, have runoff for the U.S. Senate primary coming up in, in May. Any, th- any thoughts on that? Uh, State Senator Royce West from Dallas and M.J. Hagar, former congressional candidate from the Austin area, are in the finals. Uh, it's a, a, a type of campaign you know very well. Any thoughts on that runoff? Yeah. So first of all, we're, we're really lucky that uh, they're both in this runoff. Uh, either of them would be a great nominee against Cornyn, and, and both of them would make terrific senators, right? So, so we're lucky no matter what the outcome is. And we're also um, in this embarrassment of riches right now where all these great people are stepping up for public service. So Amanda Edwards from Houston was also in that race. Uh, Christina Sinsun Ramirez, Chris Bell, um, a lot of really wonderful people who I think will have a a very strong future going forward in in this state. You know, I I don't have, uh, I haven't decided who I'm going to vote for uh, to begin with. So I'm very interested in hearing these candidates make their case. Um, Really want to hear what they have to say about uh, you know what's going on right now in in the news and certainly how they would handle some of the public health challenges we face. But then, you know, Texas should be taking the lead on on immigration, on U.S. Mexico border issues, on addressing the tens of thousands of asylum seekers who have come to our front door, and now thanks to yesterday's Supreme Court decision, will remain in place in what is Orwellian referred to as the Migrant Protection Protocol. Um, I, I want to champion for. Um, our values that we understand better than anyone else because we're the defining border state. I want to hear someone talk about gun violence in a way that captures my attention and, and my imagination. I want to be inspired. And, and I also want to see these candidates travel the state. You mentioned these important suburban communities and the major metro areas. Um, they've got to be there. But I also want to see them in Midland and Odessa and Dalhart, Dalhart and Boys Ranch and um, you know, all throughout the pan. I want to see them in, in Carthage and Palestine and, and East Texas. I want to see them in the Rio Grande Valley, which is not easy to get to and does not turn out commensurate with its numbers. Uh, but maybe that is a, a, a catch-22. Um, will people turn out if no candidates ever show up? Will candidates ever show up if no people ever turn out? Someone's got to break that cycle. And I'd love to see these Senate candidates go down and campaign really hard on the U.S.-Mexico border and the RGV and Laredo and, and in El Paso. So I think if they do that, uh, then, then not only will they win in this runoff, but then they really have a fighting chance to defeat John Cornyn, which, given what we have before us, the challenges we face in climate and immigration and health, um, just to name three, we also need a Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate. So um, I will do everything I can once a nominee is selected to help them. Um, as well as make sure that we're focused on these other priorities, the state house, and then the mother of them all, uh, defeating Donald Trump. <laughs> well said, well said. Well, uh, Beto O'Rourke, thanks for coming in today, and thanks for all you're doing to move Texas forward. Yeah, thank you. Likewise, and look forward to, to seeing you again soon. Thanks.
Uh, Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I wanted to start with the most obvious question, which is why paid sick leave is so critical during an outbreak. I think it boils down to something that everybody can relate to, and that is you have to have a job in order to pay the bills, but you also have to take care of yourself. And if you're sick, a lot of times workers are stuck choosing between whether they're going to go to work and be able to earn money or if they're going to stay home and be able to recover and take care of themselves or if they have a loved one who's sick and they need to take care of them. That's the impossible decision that we put in front of workers every single day that we don't provide paid sick Now, Workers' Defense Project itself has been kind of on the front lines of this issue for a couple of years now. Can you talk about some of y'all's work involved with paid sick leave in Texas? Yeah, of course. Um, We have been very proud to be working alongside a lot of other really fantastic progressive organizations across Texas to win paid sick leave ordinances in three of Texas's biggest cities, in Austin, in San Antonio, and in Dallas. And in each of those cities, uh, Workers' Defense Project was able to uh, build a campaign that brought in public voices, public pressure, that really just demonstrated the need and the urgency of having paid sick leave for workers in each of those cities. And so far, we've been able to successfully pass ordinances in each of those cities. As I think you know, uh, there have been legal challenges in San Antonio and in Austin that have delayed the implementation of those policies. But in Dallas, they have been able to uh, begin implementation of the policy uh, without those delays. So obviously, there's there's one big name missing there, which is which is Houston, Texas's largest city. Uh, how come Houston? How come local leaders in Houston haven't uh, passed this ordinance as well? I think that's a really good question. I think this comes down to a lack of leadership. I mean, the city of Houston's leaders need to step up and make this a priority, just as they have in other cities. You know, without strong leadership from the top, that I don't see how this kind of a policy can make it through and become. Uh, a norm in a place like Houston. And is this something um, that, you know, either city council or the mayor himself has come out against, or is this just something that's really not on their radar? Like what I'm just trying to understand the holdup. I think, I don't know exactly what their positions have been publicly so far. I don't know that they've come out against it per se, but I will say this should be a priority. And this is something that they've certainly known about for a while. It's certainly something they've seen happen in other tech cities. Um, And it also just speaks to common sense. They should know about it because I'm sure they've gotten sick before and had to figure out if they're going to go to work. Uh, So, you know, as far as why we don't have a policy in Houston, I think the issue has been, you know, we need leadership that's going to prioritize this kind of thing. And if this was true before the most recent coronavirus outbreak, it's especially true now. I think this particular public health crisis has just highlighted something that was true well before the coronavirus outbreak. And that is, you have to figure out how to take care of people so that they are not choosing between putting food food on their table or uh, taking care of themselves and making sure they stay healthy. Absolutely. One study that's been making the rounds recently from the Center for Public Priorities is a number that says 40% of working Texans, or about 4.3 million Texans, aren't being paid when they take six days. Can you paint a picture as to who this 40% is, who they are, what industries they come from, et cetera? Yeah. 
absolutely. So first of all, you know, it's 40% of Texas workers. And, and like you said, that's over 4 million workers who, have, who don't have access to paid sick time. But that's not just spread evenly across the population. We're really talking about uh, particularly workers in the restaurant industry, in um, the food service industry, in construction, in janitorial services. Low-wage workers in particular get really hard hit by not having access to paid sick time. Black and brown workers have uh, far lower access to paid sick time. I think the stats I've seen on that are that I think it's 50% of Hispanic workers and 37% of black workers lack access to paid sick time in Texas. And that's you know disproportionate, and, and it's wrong. One argument I've heard from Republicans opposing paid sick leave is that the decision should be left up to the businesses and not the cities passing these ordinances. What's your response to that? Uh, well, it's wrong. <laughs> I think it's pretty simple. <laughs> um, I'd say, first of all, uh, the idea that it should be left up to businesses to decide if the worker is going to get paid or not if they're sick. Uh, you know, what, what's, what's the outcome? What's the result of that? of that choice, of that policy decision. What you end up with is a worker who has to decide if they're going to go into work sick, maybe get other folks at work sick as well, or maybe you know their own condition worsen, or if they're going to stay home and forego a paycheck. So in my experience, and from talking to workers here in Houston that Workers' Defense Project represents or the members of our organization, that's not a real choice. That's not actually a choice at all. People end up having to go to work in order to take care of themselves or their family. Um, you know, another thing that I've heard from businesses that are opposed to this, they'll say, well, this is such a huge financial burden on the business. And, you know, we shouldn't ask small businesses to have to do this. Uh, how can we ask them to provide paid sick leave? I think the, I think the coronavirus outbreak should make this very clear to folks that it doesn't matter if it's a big or a small business, workers still absolutely need to have access to paid sick leave. And that's because, you know, COVID-19 does not discriminate between whether a worker is at a large or a medium or a small business. Someone gets the coronavirus, they get the coronavirus, and then they have to figure out how to, you know, pay their bills, uh, pay for groceries, pay rent. So, you know, I think what this all comes back to is, do we believe that Every human being should be able to take care of themselves, both their family financially, but also their own health. Uh, do we actually prioritize public health in these situations? If so, the answer is really simple. Everybody needs to have access to paid sick leave. And speaking of prioritizing public health and looking at the larger picture, what is your honest assessment for how state and federal leaders have responded to the outbreak so far, and not, not just in terms of paid sick leave? Well, as far as the coronavirus goes, you know, medical professionals are in broad agreement on a few main points on this already. And you don't have to be a doctor to know these things. One is social distancing is basically the most effective strategy for dealing with a pandemic like the coronavirus. And what that means is people shouldn't be in close proximity to each other. And if they're sick, they need to stay home. The fact that the federal government failed to provide uh, the tests for coronavirus to state and local officials, the fact that state and local officials haven't gotten adequate support to provide those public health resources to testing facilities, to hospitals, to doctors, that's a major failure. 
what we've seen on the bright side is that a lot of folks have really tried to step up. You see communities and uh, individuals trying to take care of their friends, their loved ones, take precaution, sharing good information where they get it. But, you know, there's only so far that charity and goodwill goes. At a certain point, you do need adults in charge. You do need adults who are making good choices for the broader community that they're supposed to represent. And something as simple as you should be able to stay home uh, instead of going into work and maybe endangering your coworkers or worsening your own condition if you're sick, something like that, that's a really basic decision that state, local leaders should be able to get behind, support, and recognize the value of, not just because every person deserves that basic respect, but because now this is a a critical pillar of our public health strategy to stopping the coronavirus. I don't think it can get more simple than that. I couldn't agree more. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks. This week, we are looking at House District 66 in the Dallas area, which includes a part of northern Dallas and the city of Plano. This district is comprised of more than 40% people of color. The current representative of District 66 is Matt Shaheen, a Republican incumbent who was first elected in 2015. Looking at his legislative record, Shaheen hasn't accomplished much in his terms thus far, but has supported bills making it easier to request vaccine exemptions, restrict a woman's right to choose, allowing open carry of guns and guns in schools and places of worship, and prohibiting sanctuary cities. Shaheen has received a high rating from the NRA and has been a member of the Freedom Caucus since 2017. He has also received nearly $20,000 in contributions from disgraced Texas Speaker of the House Dennis Bonin's campaign. It's time to do some house cleaning. Shaheen is facing a rematch this year against his 2018 Democratic opponent, Sharon Hirsch, who lost to Shaheen by 0.6%. That's less than 400 votes. As a longtime staff member for the Plano ISD school system, Hirsch is a strong advocate for investing in public education and women's issues, including equal pay for equal work and a woman's right to choose. She supports a $15 minimum wage and wants to expand Medicaid eligibility under the Affordable Care Act. Thank you for listening to The Texas Signal. The podcast was edited by Sara Thugvi. To find out more about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at thetexassignal.com.